As far as the calendar is concerned, especially the religious calendar is concerned, this is the day that they call Easter, that uh, the religious world sets aside as a very special day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we understand and appreciate from studying God's Word that there was no type of special celebration set up in the New Testament, but instead... God gave us the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, every first day of the week, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to celebrate this day as a special day, uh, that's your prerogative to do so, as long as you don't bind it on someone else. But my point is this morning, we need to make sure and appreciate that every single time the sun rises on the first day of the week, We need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ lives and He will forever live. And because He does indeed live, we too are going to live forever. And so each and every Lord's Day when we arise and awake and we see the sun shining, we need to be reminded that our soul is now eternal. That even though this fleshly body may die, we will live eternally and we have only two places in which we can live eternally. eternally. And that is this, either eternally with God the Father in heaven or live eternally with Satan and his uh, demons in hell. So every Lord's Day should be a day of a reminder, not just one special day picked out on the calendar. But we also are very thankful for any occasion that causes people to think about Jesus Christ and therefore we'll at least be thankful for that this morning. Speaking of Jesus Christ, I think it would be good for us this morning to spend some time talking about Him. And I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, to the passage that was read for us a few moments ago from Luke chapter 4. And I want us to begin at this point in time with verse 16. And I'm going to read a couple of passages to you, and I want you to think about these passages, and we'll have more to say about them in just a moment. But I hope that you have your Bible with you, because we're going to be looking directly at the text today and sticking to it. If you want to, you can go ahead and place your ribbon there like I've done. But Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, Luke gives us this narrative. He says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Dropping down to verse 28, we see the conclusion of this particular episode in Jesus' life when it says, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. 
and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built that they may cast him down headlong. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. This morning I want us to zero in on verses 18 and 19. All of us have heard about the gospel according to Matthew and the gospel according to Mark and the gospel according to Luke and the gospel according to John. But this morning we're going to spend our time talking about the gospel according to Jesus Christ. Here in this particular text we find what is the mission or the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very reason why He came to this earth. Here in this particular text, in verses 18 and 19, we have Jesus Christ reading from Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 and 2, which was a prophecy about the Messiah, about the Anointed One, the One that God would send to deliver the people of Israel. Jesus is reading from this particular passage, and He's introducing Himself as the One who is the fulfillment of this particular passage. Sin has always been with us. From the beginning of time when Adam and Eve sinned until this point in time, sin has always been with us. Sin is the oldest thing that has existed in mankind. But what Jesus is telling us in this particular passage, as He is announcing Himself as the one who fulfills this passage, He's saying there's something new on the scene. Something new That's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, before we look at this particular two verses, I want us to look at the background of what's happening here. I want you to notice in verse 16 that Jesus has come to the city of Nazareth. This was the city in which he was raised. We know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that's what the prophet said he would be born, would be in Bethlehem. But his hometown was actually Nazareth. And so I want you to imagine the fact that here is Jesus at the very beginning of His ministry. If you make the parallel with John's Gospel, you see that this takes place not too long after Jesus was baptized. And Jesus is beginning His ministry and He's coming to His hometown, the place where everybody should accept Him, but we'll find out later that's not the case. But He comes to His hometown and as the text says, as was His custom... Jesus had a custom. Jesus had a habit. Jesus had something that He did that He did without thinking. And that is, on the Sabbath day, He was going to show up at the synagogue. Now we understand that we no longer worship on the Sabbath. Sabbath was the Saturday for the Jews. We worship on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, the first day of the week, which I've already mentioned, that celebrates the resurrection of His body from the tomb. But I want to make, make sure we understand that Jesus always made it His practice or His custom or His habit that if it was the Sabbath day, a day set aside by God as a special day, He was going to be in the synagogue. That's where He needed to be. And of course the lesson is obvious for us that on the Lord's day, it should be our custom, our habit, something that we do without thinking that we're going to be with the Lord's people on the Lord's day because we celebrate the most glorious thing that the world has ever seen and that is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on this particular occasion. 
And also we get the opportunity to gather around the Lord's table, which celebrates the greatest gift that God has ever given mankind, and that is the gift of the blood of Jesus Christ, which we commemorate each and every Lord's Day. But notice, as he's in this synagogue, it says that he stood up to read. Now it's interesting, two Sundays ago during questions and answers, I had a discussion about the uh, synagogue. Someone asked a question about the synagogue, and in response to that, I gave you a history of the synagogue, and also gave you an outline of the worship of the synagogue. And after having that question answered, it got me thinking about this particular text, because here we see that particular worship uh, service in action. If you remember a couple Sunday nights ago, I explained to you that in the synagogue worship, anybody could be asked, or anybody could ask for the opportunity to stand before the congregation, the men could, and ask to be read a scripture and then give their explanation of it. This is what we have going on here with Jesus. Jesus was either asked to read because the hometown boy came home, or perhaps he asked the one in charge of the worship service if he could read. Regardless of the situation, Jesus is now standing in the pulpit of the synagogue, and they happened to give him the scroll that had the words of Isaiah in it. Now you've got to understand that Isaiah is a long book, it's over 60 chapters long, and since it was in a scroll, that oftentimes they would not just hand the scroll to the person and let him just keep scrolling through it till he found a passage that he liked, but instead the one in charge of the synagogue would already have a passage picked out and have the scroll open to the section that needed to be read. What so happens here in our text, as it says in verse 17, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, through the providence of God, no doubt, the very passage that describes the gospel of Jesus Christ, it falls open to that passage. And so picture in your mind, if you will, Jesus looking down at that scroll and He sees the passage from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2 that describes Him and describes His message, His mission, His purpose in coming to the earth. Jesus reads these particular words and He just simply sits down and closes the book, closes the scroll shut, sits down in his chair, and you notice in verse 20 it says, And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Somebody might ask the question, well, why were they all fastened on him? Well, because normally in a synagogue service, after you've read the passage, you were supposed to give an exegesis of it, or interpretation of it, or some type of comment about it. Jesus didn't do that. He just simply closed the scroll, went down and sat back in his seat in the pew, if you will. And so everybody looked at him like, hey dude, you forgot something. You were supposed to say something about the passage. And so all these eyes, imagine all these people in this congregation were looking at Jesus. And this is what he says. He finally gives a comment on the text in verse 21 when it says, he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your eyes. There's my interpretation. This scripture is talking about me. 
And of course, the verse 22 talks about the idea that how in the world can this guy who's just simply Joseph's son being, uh, saying these things about himself, and eventually, as Jesus explains more, they uh, try to kill him. They try to throw him off a cliff, if you will, but Jesus, in a miraculous way, uh, just simply passes through the crowd. But this morning, as I have here on the screen, I want us to think about what Jesus said his mission was. As he looked at these verses in the book of Isaiah, he's applying them to himself, and it breaks itself down into six components that we will talk about very briefly this morning. And this is the only screen I'm going to have up on the board today, so if you want to follow along, you're going to have to look into your Bibles instead of me putting things up on the screen for you to look at visually. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 18, that it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Most scholars believe that he is making reference to the fact that Isaiah and the prophecy here was fulfilled by Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist. And we know how that when Jesus came out of the water that the Spirit of God descended upon him in a form of a dove and a voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That marks the official beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And therefore Isaiah nailed it when he says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus is saying the Spirit of the Lord is upon me now. It's time for me to get to work. And here is my work. The very first thing he says, He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now the very first thing we're going to notice in this text that Jesus brings out a lot of physical things that take place in the world today. One of the problems that the Jews had was that they believed that Jesus was going to be a physical king that did physical things. But Jesus, when he's saying that he fulfilled the prophecy of this passage, he wasn't talking about physical things. He was talking about spiritual things. And so when he says the first component of his mission is to preached the gospel to the poor, he wasn't talking about those who were poor as far as being in poverty in a material way, but he was talking about being poor in a spiritual way. In fact, as we read through the Bible, we discover people who were great, wealthy people, but yet they were very poor when it came to spiritual things. For example, we can open our Bibles to the book of Luke, to Luke chapter 12, and we read a story there about a rich farmer who thought that he had everything the world needed to offer. In fact, he was so wealthy that he decided that he needed to build more barns to keep everything that he had, place to store them. But God called him a fool. He says, now whose things shall these be? In other words, we need to appreciate and understand the fact here was a man who had all kinds of wealth as far as the world was concerned, but yet he was very, very poor. There's another story in Luke chapter 18 that tells the story about a man that was referred to as a rich young ruler. A man who had all the material wealth that he would need. But when he came to Jesus and asked, what do I need to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you need to go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Text tells us that this man went away sorrowfully because he had great wealth. Here was a man who was indeed rich as far as the world was concerned, but yet he was very poor as far as spiritual things were concerned. In the book of Revelation, we read the story about a church by the name of Laodicea. Evidently, this church was extremely wealthy. 
But when we open our Bibles up to Revelation chapter 3 and we look at verse 17 and we discover the fact that Jesus says, you may think you have everything, but you are a poor church that has nothing. And it's because they may have had material wealth as far as the world is concerned, but they were poor spiritually. So what Jesus is telling us here in this text is He's not coming to preach the gospel to the poor that has no money, but He's come to preach the gospel to the poor who are poor spiritually. You see, the word poor means lacking of the necessary resources that a person needs. That's the true definition of poor. Lacking the resources that someone needs. And what Jesus wants us to think about here, He is coming to preach the gospel uh, to those who are so poor that they have no hope. That they're so poor they can't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They're so poor they can't go to Him in prayer. They're so poor that they're lost and they can't do anything about it. Jesus Christ came to this world to preach the gospel to those who were without resources to make the way themselves. Over in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, we are reminded that without Jesus Christ, we are aliens from the commonwealth of Jesus, or from Israel. We were strangers from the covenant of promise. We were without Christ and without hope in the world. Jesus Christ says, I've come to this world to preach the good news that even though you don't have adequate resources to save yourself, I have come to give the good news to the poor. That's my mission. But then he says, the next thing he came to this world to do, it says, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. There's a lot of things in the world today that can break our hearts. When a loved one is sick, when a loved one passes away, when a loved one disappoints us or when someone else disappoints us, when other things in life that causes us disappointment, discouragement, and struggle and pain, it can break our heart. But once again, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Yes, there are things in this world that break our heart and there are legitimate things that break our heart. But Jesus is talking about how that He wants to heal the heart that is broken by sin. When a person realizes how sinful they are, when a person realizes how when they stand before the glory and the majesty and the righteousness and the holiness of God and realizes who God is and realizes how we are in His presence, then that should just break our heart. That should tear us in two. When we think about the fact that God has been so good to us in spite of that, when we think about the fact that God blesses us and blesses us, He's been so good to us and He's shown His love to us in so many ways. And then we start thinking about the ugliness of sin and how that God can't tolerate sin in His presence. And when you combine the fact that He is good to us and we respond to Him in sin, that should break our hearts. But God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to heal the broken heart. It's like He takes that heart that's broken in two, and He grabs it with the hands of the cross, and He brings it back together to mend that broken heart. Jesus Christ had His heart thrusted with a spear so that our hearts could be healed. And I don't think until that judgment day, until we stand before the throne of God, 
and we really see and experience the goodness of God, and we really see the ugliness of sin and how God looks at sin, will we really truly appreciate how much our hearts should have been broken and what Jesus Christ did in coming to this earth to heal that broken heart. But then he goes on and says, to preach deliverance to the captives. Captivity of any kind would be rough. I've had the opportunity in the past to visit prisons and visit people in the jail, and I just can't imagine uh, being in a situation where I had no freedom, where I uh, couldn't go where I wanted to go, see who I wanted to see, and do what I wanted to do. But in Jesus' day, being in prison was indeed a terrible, terrible thing. They did not have the customary things that prisoners get to enjoy today. It was an extremely terrible place, oftentimes bound by shackles, and more than likely if you were in prison, you would eventually die because of the ill treatment there. And so any captivity would be bad, but once again, Jesus is not talking about earthly confinement, earthly captivity, but He's talking about two very special type of shackles. Two shackles that have been holding man captive for year after year after year since the beginning of time. I'm talking about the shackle on one hand of sin and the shackle on the other hand of death. There's an interesting passage over in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15 where uh, the writer of Hebrew reminds us of these particular words. You can keep your finger if you want to where you are and turn over there, but let me just simply read for you what the writer says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15. Talking about Jesus Christ, it says, well, I'll just begin at verse 14. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now listen to what he says in verse 15 and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage or captivity. Jesus Christ is saying that He came to this earth to deliver those of us who have been held captive by sin and by death. Jesus over in John chapter 8 and verse 32 reminds us, that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He delivered us from the chains of sin. When Jesus rose again on the first day of the week, He delivered us from the chains of death. And as we discover the truth of the gospel, how that if we obey the gospel... We can have that freedom from sin, have that freedom from death. Jesus Christ says, I have come. As the text says, my mission is to preach the deliverance of the captives. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the things that He preached was, you can have forgiveness of sins. You can have eternal life. That's my mission in life. But then, the next little section, little pericope of Scripture here says, and recovering of the sight to the blind. Now, obviously, when Jesus was here on this earth, He healed the blind. Uh, There's an interesting passage there in Luke chapter 16 that talks about how He healed a man blind from birth. But that's not what's being talked about here. 
He's talking about the blindness that happens when we have spiritual blindness. Over in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 14, Jesus talking about the religious leaders of his day. He says, you need to let those blind people alone. Because when the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. He wasn't talking about the Pharisees and the other religious leaders as being blind. They couldn't see as they walked, physically blind. He was talking about they were blind to the very thing that was right in front of them. They had spiritual blindness. In other words, what Jesus is talking about here in this passage, the recovering of the sight to the blind. In other words, He's going to open our eyes to something. He's going to make us see something we've never seen before. In other words, Jesus came to this earth to make us see something we've never seen before, and that is how good God actually is. If you want to see how good God actually is, look at Jesus Christ. God in the flesh came to live and die for each and every one of us. Open your eyes to that and see that. He also wants us to understand and open our eyes to the fact that we have a need. One of the things that is the first component in a person becoming a Christian is they've got to admit to themselves. They've got to lower that pride and humbly admit, I have a need to be saved. They need to ask like the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Jesus Christ came to open our eyes to that. And above all, of course, He came to open our eyes to the truth. As I've already mentioned, Jesus says in John 8, 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus came to open our eyes. But then the next section says, To set at liberty... Them that are bruised. Once again, there's a lot of different ways we can get bruises in this world. But he's not talking about physical bruises. He once again is talking about spiritual bruises. Things that bruise our lives. Things that bruise our souls because of the fact that we make mistakes in this life. We sin in this life. And whenever we sin, it doesn't leave just a clean surface, it always leaves a mark. It leaves something that is ugly. Uh, I don't know how many bruises in your life you've ever seen, but bruises aren't pretty. Bruises are noticeable. Bruises are an ugly color. But as we go through this life, because of our mistakes and sin, oftentimes we have bruised reputations. Oftentimes we have bruised lives. Oftentimes we have bruised consciences. But Jesus says, one of my missions is to finally set people free from those bruises. You don't have to carry that guilt that has bruised you for all of your life. You can finally be set free. Well, time is marching on, so let's now look at verse 19. We're actually in the text, as far as Isaiah chapter 62 uh, this is where verse 2 begins. And that's perhaps the reason why they divided it up in the verses the way that it did. But Jesus says the final aspect of his mission as far as Isaiah's prophecy is concerned is to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now when Jesus spoke these words, those in the audience immediately started thinking about the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was known as the acceptable year of the Lord because that was the year set up in the law of Moses that was a year of redemption. 
If you owed debts to people, you didn't owe those debts anymore. If you had um, lost some land for some reason, you got your land back. In other words, the year of Jubilee that only came around uh, every 100 years was the idea of the fact that during this time period, everything that was wrong would be made right. Everything that needed to be redeemed was redeemed. All the mistakes, all the scores, everything that needed to be settled would be settled. Isaiah was using this term to speak of it in a prophetic sense that the time would come, there would be a year, a special year of Jubilee when God would make everything right in the world again. And Jesus says, Looking at this text, he's saying to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He's telling them when he tells them this is fulfilled in my sight, that now this is the year. Now is that time in history. Now is a special time in history like there never was before. There's a new era that's beginning. Before man waited on the Savior, now the Savior is waiting for man to come to him. This is the beginning of the gospel age, Jesus is saying. This is where it all begins. In fact, the prophet, or not the prophet, but the apostle Paul kind of plays on this particular idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 when he says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So Jesus is saying, today is the day of salvation. From this point forward, Jesus began to preach the gospel. Jesus began to tell people about how that He was God on earth, setting the stage as He kept the law perfectly so that He could die on the cross to save us from our sins. And after He rose again on the third day and He was talking to His apostles about what people needed to do to respond to His gospel... He tells them in Mark 16 and verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He tells them in another place in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 that they needed to go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have taught unto you. Jesus Christ says, I have come to do all these things, and now the day of salvation is here, and here's what you need to do. And so when Peter got up to preach that very first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost, after rehearsing that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God, and He too was the fulfillment of these prophecies that Jesus just read, He says in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that this same Jesus whom ye crucified was both Lord and Christ. The text says when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter told them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. Jesus stands before you today and he says, This is my gospel. How will you respond to it? Now it's interesting that when Jesus read these words from Isaiah chapter 62, that He did something that uh, we kind of miss when we first look at the text. But take just a few moments. I know that we're running out of time, but open your Bibles to Isaiah 62. And I want you to notice what Jesus was reading, and I want you to notice what Jesus did. 
Because when we first look at what's in Luke's account, and we look at what Isaiah said, and we look at what Jesus read, and where he stopped, there may be something special and significant going on here. Isaiah chapter 61, I said 62, but Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. I want you to notice what it says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now notice what happens in verse 2, though. Remember, Jesus is reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Verse 2 says, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Now look at Luke's account. You notice what Jesus did? You notice the point that he was trying to make? You notice where he stopped? You notice where he closed the book and sat down? As he was reading Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, notice he didn't finish reading the whole text. He stopped where it says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He stops right there and he omits the rest of the verse. And the rest of the verse talks about the day of vengeance of our God. Now that creates a puzzle in my mind. Why did he do that? I'm sure he still believed in the vengeance of God. The vengeance of God still exists. But you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't emphasize the vengeance of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ emphasizes the fact that he came to preach good news to the poor. He came to heal the, the, the blind. He came to set the captive free. He came to heal our bruises. He came to proclaim that this is the year of Jubilee. This is the acceptable year of our Lord. This is the day of our salvation. Now, when his hometown buddies heard that, oh, they got mad. <laughs> they got so mad that they tried to kill Jesus. Because he would dare claim to make such a, a statement. The question this morning is, you've heard the same scripture read by Jesus today. How are you going to respond? Are you going to let him heal your broken heart? Are you going to let him bring you out of poverty? Are you going to respond to the acceptable year of our Lord? If you have a need, we hope that you'll respond as together we stand and sing.